promise that to everyone who receives Christ, to everyone who believes in him, they shall be called sons and daughters of God. What an amazing privilege that is. We live in this world that has so many ups and downs. We, we face challenges even on a daily basis. We face uncertainties about the future. Yet we can call you Father. And Lord, you are a trustworthy Father. You are never an absent Father. You're never a Father who leaves or forsakes your children. But you're always present. You're always active in our lives and in the circumstances around this world. And I pray that as we open to your word today, that you will give us an increasing trust and faith in you. Uh, just trusting that you are that loving God, that you are a powerful God, that you are a God who is sovereign over everything. And therefore, even as we face a tumultuous and uncertain world and future, uh, that we can still trust you. And we look forward to one day standing face to face with you. But between then and now, Lord, may we be faithful to you. And we pray that you will give us eyes and ears that are ready to receive what you have to say to us today. Give us a heart and a willingness to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Bible contains many great promises from God. And they're backed by his authority. But one of the things that the Bible never promises us is that if we follow Jesus, life will be easy, or that it will be comfortable, or that our faith in Christ will make us popular. These are things that the Bible never promises. I think, for instance, of Paul's words to the young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Tremendous incentive to follow Jesus, isn't it? Hey, come follow Jesus, people will oppose you. You will be persecuted. But this really echoes the sentiment of Jesus himself. John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, which, they, which we know that they did with Jesus, they will persecute you also. I think as well of, of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these, I would say, are not necessarily great marketing slogans for Christianity because, again, we all, just naturally as human beings, would like life to be easier. We'd like to be, to be more comfortable. I mean, we like people around us to, to like us and approve of us. But it's clear that if we want to be dedicated followers of Christ, there will be times when people oppose us or when life will not be comfortable. And that's simply a reality of following Christ in our broken world. Now, we have to also face the reality that American culture is changing. Back 60 or 70 years ago, it was the norm for people to attend church on a Sunday morning, for that to be a regular part of their uh, weekly life. But that is changing. I mean, back then, if you had someone who didn't attend church regularly, they would be looked on maybe as an outsider. People would be kind of suspicious about, okay, what's going on with them? Maybe, maybe they're an atheist. You know, 60, 70 years ago, that, that was a big deal. Today, it's actually quite the opposite. Today, it's when someone gets serious about Jesus and about church, that's when people begin to look at them and be like, man, what got into her? What happened to him? 
I liked him more the way he was before. That's the way many people view Christians. And we just have to face this reality. The polls say that about 40% of Americans claim that church is important to them or that it's a priority. But in reality, only about 20% of Americans regularly are involved in a church family. 20%. It's about one in five Americans. And we see this, this tide turning in many ways against Christianity. We see it in media. We see it in politics. We see it in higher education. And so we have to come to grips with this reality that if we want to follow Christ, there will be times when people oppose us, when they don't understand why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do. That's the reality because, again, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Now, that was a very uh, joyous note to turn in the Bible on, wasn't it? Um, but these are realities in our world, which we're going to see in Esther, which if you've been here in recent weeks through the book of Esther, we've seen this. Esther is a really an amazing story. It's a story of rags to riches. It's a story of underdogs and villains. It's a story filled with suspense and intrigue. It's a story with egomaniac leaders, but it's also the story of the unseen God and how he is active even through all these things that are going on. Now, one of the things that's been clear throughout the book of Esther is that the Jews are in a very dangerous situation at at this point in Esther. Uh, If you picture in your mind Nazi Germany back in the late 1930s, early 1940s, you get a glimpse of what it would be like to be a Jewish person in the Persian Empire back during this era. Because there was this evil man named Haman who convinced the king to issue a decree that all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire should be exterminated. And it was focused in on one particular day that this should take place. So you think of all the terrors of the Nazis that took place over about a decade, and you condense all those into one day. And that's what the Jews in the Persian Empire were facing. But then when that one day came, which we are going to see today, when that day came, the tables were turned. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read, beginning in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read a significant portion of this chapter, and then we'll dig into it. It says, On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout all the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Espatha, Paratha, Adelia, Aradatha, <laughs> you like these names? <laughs> Parmashtha, Arisai, Aridai, 
and Visatha. These are the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, and this is the king speaking to Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted to you. If it pleases the, queen, Esther, the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a, a day of, of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in the villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of feasting and joy, a day for giving presents to each other. So here we have a passage. If, if you thought the introduction to this message was, you know, not super uplifting, I, I doubt that this passage really uplifted your spirits a whole lot either. It's a passage that in many ways can make us uncomfortable, but it is a part of God's inspired word, and we have to understand what was going on here and what relevance does it have for our lives today. Now, what is very clear in this passage is you have a picture of the Jews destroying their enemies. It took place on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Obviously, they had a different calendar than we do, but that's sufficient to know that there was one particular day that this took place. But this was a significant day because he had these two opposing decrees that were both to be put into action on that same day, the 13th day of the month of Adar. He had a decree, a more recent decree from Mordecai and Esther, which said that the Jews can defend themselves. But then you also had this uh, older decree that was nearly a year old by this point that came from this evil man, Haman, that said all the Jews should be destroyed. And so you had this all coming to a head on one particular day. And, and for, for many months, the enemies of the Jews thought, okay, this is going to be the day. This is going to be the day we finally get rid of these Jewish people in our midst. I imagine there had been propaganda. They had come out from Haman and from Haman's followers. Um, and so they were looking for this day. But on this day there is what you could call a great reversal. Look with me uh, to verse 1. It says that on this day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower the Jews. So they'd hoped to gain the upper hand there. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So there was this big reversal where I mean, it was going to be the Jews who were exterminated. Now it's the Jews coming out on top. And from a human perspective, the reason this took place 
the reason why the Jews got the upper hand is that they had the support of the empire behind them. Look with me to verse 3. It says, All the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews. They helped the Jews. Um, I mean, remember, there were these two decrees that were both to be enacted on the same day. The one from Haman uh, to destroy the Jews. And then the one from Mordecai and Esther that said uh, that, that the empire should support the Jews. So you have destroy the Jews, support the Jews. You have these two conflicting decrees. They both uh, were to be enacted on the same day. They were both still in force. They both came from the same authority, the, the king of the empire. So you can imagine these, these authorities throughout the empire are a bit confused of, okay, what should we do here? It's one of the strange things about the, the Persian legal system that a law or a decree that, that was enacted on the authority of the king could never be repealed. To me, it's a, that's just, it's, it just doesn't make sense that you'd have that type of uh, stipulation in your legal system that a decree or a law could never be repealed because, you know what, there might be a time you want to change something. But that's the way it worked in the Persian Empire. And so you had these two decrees. I mean, you couldn't repeal the first decree. So instead, they just issued a, a counter-decree. And so you have them both coming to a head. And so you picture these officials throughout the Persian Empire just thinking, okay, what should we do on this day? Should we follow Haman's decree that bore the king's authority to destroy the Jews? Or should we support the Jews? But we see that they supported the Jews. And the reason was... Because of Mordecai, it says all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. And so we see that it was because of Mordecai. Mordecai, by this point, is Esther's cousin. He was put to be second in command of the entire empire under King Xerxes. And so they were afraid of Mordecai. They were afraid of what he might do to them if they disobeyed this decree. And so they supported the Jews by and large. And you think about what this is like when a higher authority comes into a situation and how, you know what, the higher authority can really throw their weight around on things. I think about parents with children. Parenting is a, is a big responsibility, isn't it? I mean, it's not always the easiest thing, but it's a significant responsibility. I think about my family. There are times when Shelley and I are not in the room with our kids, and you hear chaos beginning to break loose in that room. And generally, try to get to that room pretty quickly, because if you don't, it degrades into a civil war pretty quickly. And by that point, neither one of the kids is innocent of what's going on. They're both contributing to it, and it's hard to really sort out what, what really happened here. But there are times when I come into a situation, or I witness something that's going on, and it's very clear which one was the aggressor in the situation. And I found whenever a parent enters a situation like that, instantly the ba- balance of power changes. Because the parent carries so much more authority and power, in essence, than any of the kids do. That's just that's part of the nature of being an adult and being a parent. In general, whichever side, if the parent supports one side in a given situation, say supports the one who's being beat up by the other one, then, then that throws the balance of power in a different direction. And that's, that's one of the reasons why being a parent is such a huge responsibility because parents do have uh, so much influence over their children. 
And so we should not take that responsibility lightly. But it's similar in, in the Persian Empire. How when the, the, the whole authority of the empire comes behind Mordecai's decree to support the Jews, you know what? People are going to fall in line. The, the Jewish leaders, by and large, were going to then support the Jews because a higher authority had come in and begin to, begun to throw his weight around. And that higher authority was Mordecai, second in command, who was backed by the king Xerxes, who was first in command in the empire. And so you see this taking place, and it says in verse 2 that no one could stand against the Jews. Now, one of the other interesting things in this passage is that there was not one but two days of destruction. Now, the first day we see in verses 5 and 6 uh, that in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And that includes the ten sons of Haman, whose names are really hard for us to pronounce. Jump ahead to verse 16. We see what was taking place in the broader uh, empire, the broader countryside outside of that capital city. It says, meanwhile, in the remainder of the Jews who are in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands in the plunder. So on that one day, the 13th of the month of Adar, the Jews had killed 75,500 people in the Persian Empire. I mean, this is um, it's kind of like a civil war taking place, basically, because you have both sides um, fighting against each other. It, it doesn't really tell how many casualties there were among the Jews, even though I'm sure there were some, because there was fighting going on both sides. But this is fighting sanctioned by the king himself, and he's just sitting here in his capital, just kind of waiting to hear the reports of what's going to happen. And, you know, to him... Life doesn't matter that much. He, he, he's not too concerned about it. But then, interestingly, Queen Esther, as she's talking with the king, she says, can we have one additional day of killing here in the capital? I mean, the, the decree only stipulated one day. But then Queen Esther says, you know what? I think there's a little bit more to be done here. Can we have a second day? So the king says, sure, go for it. One of the things you see in the book of Esther is the king never says no. I mean, he loves to, to display his power and authority yet at the same time. He never says no to anyone. And it's really weak. He's not really taking responsibility for things. But here he tells Esther, sure, go ahead. Uh, you can have a second day. So we see in verses 13 through 15, uh, the king commanded uh, that this be done. A second day, um, an edict was issued in, in Susa. They impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of that month. They put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And that is a key phrase here. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. The original decree from Mordecai, if you look back in Esther chapter 8, verse 11, the original decree allowed themselves to take plunder. Plunder is that anyone they, they, they killed, they could take all, their, all that person's possessions. I mean, it's spoils of war. They had that right, but they chose not to. And this makes it very clear what their motives were, were in all this violence that was taking place. Their motives were not personal gain. Their motives were more focused on defending themselves and protecting their future. Now, we come back to this whole topic of, you know, 75,000 people died. And that was just non-Jews. I'm sure, like I said, that there were Jews who died as well. And we see passages like this, and it can just make us so uncomfortable. I mean, naturally, most of us don't really care that much for violence and for killing, especially in this manner of just mass killing in one day. It doesn't make us 
very comfortable. Shelly and I yesterday were talking in the kitchen about this passage, and she's like, I don't like this type of stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, yeah, I agree. And I think most people, most Americans, we agree. We don't like to see passages of Scripture like this that talk about killing uh, other people, especially when it's God's people who are doing the killing. But I think it is important um, to really understand why is this going on in this passage? Why is all this taking place? And the bottom line is that the Jews were protecting their future. They were protecting their future. If we're struggling to understand what was taking place here, it's most likely because we don't understand how dire the circumstances were for the Jews. I mean, think about the Jews who lived in Europe in the late 1930s, early 1940s. It was literally a matter of life and death. There was this whole structure, this whole power and authority in Europe, the Nazis, and they were growing in power and, and, and influence throughout Europe. This whole structure was coming against the Jewish people to exterminate them. And it's the same thing in Persia. This whole authority of the empire was coming against the Jews. And yeah, Haman was dead, but still his ideas would have influenced a lot of the leaders. I mean, the fact that we see 500 people in that citadel of Susa killed on that first day, the citadel of Susa is where the, Jew, or where the Persian officials lived. It's where uh, the king's people who, who ruled the empire and worked in the king's administration, that's where they lived in the citadel of Susa. The fact that there were 500 people killed there in that one day shows the level of opposition to the Jews and the highest levels of Persian leadership. And so, so even though Haman was gone, this decree was still in force, and there was still a lot of anti-Semitism in play throughout the Persian Empire. And we have to understand this if we want to understand accurately why the Jews did what they did. There was a movie that came out about 20 years ago called Life is Beautiful. How many of you have seen this movie? A handful. I mean, it was critically acclaimed. I mean, got a lot of notoriety. Did we watch the full thing? It's one of Shelley's favorite movies. I struggled with it. I don't even remember if I watched the whole thing because, I mean, it's in Italian. It's subtitles. Um, it's not the easiest thing to watch. Uh, but it takes place in Europe during, um, I mean, leading up to World War II. It's, it features these Italian Jews. And it, it's really, I mean, it's a heart-wrenching story when you really get into it. I mean, there's one point. Um, it features his father and his son who are pictured up there. Uh, at one point in the movie, the father and son, it's earlier in the movie, the son's younger than he is later in the movie. They're walking through uh, this town, and they're walking in the town there, and the son sees a sign up on the store window, and he, he goes over and reads it, and it says, um, no Jews or dogs allowed, and they are Jewish. And so he asks his father, why aren't Jews or, or dogs allowed to go in? And the father, he can already see what's taking place in Europe with this Nazi mentality that is spreading. But he wants to shield his son from it. He wants to shelter his son. He doesn't want his son to know the reality, the, the grave reality that's taking place uh, and being set in there in Europe. And so he, he stretches the truth a little bit. Uh, and he tells his son, you know what? They just don't want dogs or Jews to go in. Everybody does what they want to. 
You know, there's a hardware store over there, and they don't let Spanish people or horses in the, into that store. I mean, that's not true, but he's trying to protect his son because he sees the grim realities that are about to unfold. He says, further ahead, there's a drugstore. I was with a Chinese friend of mine yesterday and who had a kangaroo. They didn't want any Chinese or kangaroos here. They don't like him. What can I tell you? And so what he's trying to do is just to minimize the reality of, of this anti-Semitism, this hatred of the Jews that was there in Europe. And, and as the story unfolds, um, I mean, the father and son end up in the concentration camp. But, but the father continues to try to shield the son from the reality of what's going on here. And, and he makes up this big game where the son can eventually win a tank if he wins the game, if he accumulates enough points by doing enough things. And the things are typically ways to hide, um, ways to go along with what is going on with the Gestapo and stuff so that, so that they are not exterminated earlier than they might be otherwise. Um, frequently this boy is up hiding in the rafters there in the camp. And at one point the boy overhears some people talking. And the boy says, they make buttons and soap out of us. The father's like, huh? I mean, the father's still trying to just shield the boy. They make buttons and soap out of us. They burn us all in the ovens. And now the father somehow convinces his son that this is not true. This is just a joke. But in reality, we know it is true. And as you watch this movie, I mean, with the bit I watched, and Shelley, I guess, really loves the movie. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you begin to catch, though, the gravity of the situation. That this is life and death. This is dire when you have an entire military machinery and filled with hatred coming against your entire people to wipe you off the face of the earth. That is what it was like for the Jews in Persia as well. And if we can understand what that would be like, we can understand what the Jews in Persia would be experiencing. They aren't waging some national or religious crusade against the heathen here. What they are doing is seeking to protect themselves for the future. I mean, it's, it's not random. It's not like they see someone in the marketplace who, you know, said something mean to them last week. Hey, it's the 13th of Adar. Let's go cut them down. It's not like that at all. Instead, they are defending themselves against the people who are trying to destroy them. For instance, back in verse 2, it says that the Jews assembled in the cities to attack those determined to destroy them. There were people in, in Persia who were determined to destroy the Jews. And the Jews have the authority now from the king to do whatever it takes to protect themselves. And so part of this means eradicating the empire of those who want to destroy the Jews. So that is what is taking place here. It's not comfortable, but we live in a broken world that oftentimes does leave us uncomfortable. One of the things we've seen throughout the book of Esther is that even though we can't see God, He is there and He is active. Now, it is hard to discern the motives behind all this stuff because one of the unique things about the book of Esther is it doesn't tell us exactly what God's views are um, of everything that's taking place. So, so we want to be careful not to read too much into exactly what's going on in terms of, um, you know, what God approves of this, God doesn't approve of this. I mean, even in this passage, was it right for Esther to, um, to ask for a second day of killing? I'm not sure. I could make a case either way. I mean, I could definitely make a case that, yes, that was important to get rid of all the rest of the remnant of those who were trying to destroy the Jews. But, you know, what? it's hard stuff. 
But one of the things, one of the main things we've been seeing throughout Esther is that even when we can't see God, he is there and he is active. And we talked earlier that when a parent comes onto a scene with children, the, the, the balance of power shifts with wherever that parent is leaning, whatever that parent's doing. In the Persian Empire, the balance of power shifted when the, the machinery of the empire threw itself behind the support of the Jews. But there is even a higher authority in this case, and that authority is God. God is the one who ultimately is in control of everything that is taking place. And we've, we've seen this throughout Esther. I mean, think about Mordecai. He got a glimpse of that when he said to Esther, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He glimpsed that God was going to work through Esther as his human agent to accomplish God's purposes and deliver the Jews. Because God had promised to the Jews centuries earlier that he would protect them. It came in Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3, it's God talking to Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The ultimate blessing that came through Abraham and the Jewish people was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy doesn't mean everything is going to be comfortable, but it does mean that God will be faithful to his promises to preserve his people. Now, people have been against God and his people throughout human history, but God will still preserve them. And we see him carrying out that promise even here in the book of Esther, that even when we can't see God, he is there, he is faithful, and he is active. Because God is in the business of caring for his people. Now we have to recognize that there is a difference, a shift from the people of God in the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jews. They were um, a nation for much of the Old Testament. They had geographical boundaries. Um, But now, in the New Testament era that we live in, the New Covenant, the people of God are a little bit different. We are no longer defined by geographical boundaries, and we're no longer defined by ethnicity. We are defined by a relationship with Christ. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2, which taking the, the, the ways that the Jews were identified in the Old Testament, it says, you, speaking to Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If our faith is in Christ, we are the people of God, and God will care for us. doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that, doesn't even mean that he's always going to spare our physical lives. I mean, there are any number of things that can take us out tomorrow or next year. I mean, there are people around the world every day who are dying because they are fa- of their faith in Christ. I mean, they are martyrs for, for Christ. The thing is, there's something so much bigger to this life than just our physical well-being. And that's what God promises to us, that he will, he will care for us and that he has taken care of us through Christ. And so we can cling to these promises even as we face trials and hardships in this life. We have to recognize that Israel, in order to defend themselves, had to take up arms because they were a nation. They were a geopolitical entity. The people of God today, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I encourage you to take a look at the rest of the chapter of Ephesians 6 because it talks about the spiritual powers, the spiritual weapons, tools that God gives us to fight a spiritual battle because that's what we are in. Our ultimate, um, if you want to say enemies or the opponents that we face in this world, they are spiritual. They work through human agency, but they are spiritual. And thankfully God has given us spiritual victory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we can cling to that even as we face trials and challenges in this life. Philip Yancey, a couple of years ago, he wrote a book. He's a Christian author. He wrote a book called Vanishing Grace. And then he talks about a Muslim man who once told Philip Yancey, you know what, I read the entire Quran and can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. This Muslim also said, I've read the entire New Testament many times and can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority. It's kind of an interesting thing, but I've thought about that many times through the years, that the New Testament is addressing a people, the people of God, who are living as the minority in their culture. And so the, the Bible equips us in powerful, very relevant ways in how to live in a culture where people do oppose us, where we are not in the majority. You know, what's taking place in America, what's taking place in the world, it's not a surprise when you read the, the Bible's descriptions of what will happen in the future. It's not a surprise. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yet, God is still faithful. And he gives us promises that he backs with his own authority. And as we close today, I want to just read a handful of his promises from Scripture. They can give us comfort. They can give us encouragement. They can give us strength through the ups and downs and the trials that we face in our lives. So, um, as we close uh, this message, I invite you, if you'd like to, just you can close your eyes if you'd like. You don't have to, but um, I'm just going to read a, a handful of passages of Scripture that can just give us hope in the midst of our lives. Psalm 46.1 God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Out of Hebrews, God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Romans chapter 8 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the mouth of Jesus, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have this promise from Revelation chapter 21, that one day God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away.
Our Father, we thank you that you are victorious. We thank you that you so love the world that you sent your one and only Son that whoever believes in you shall not perish but have everlasting life. That even though we may face hardships and trials in this life, that even though our life may be cut short or may be taken from us, even by persecution, I mean, we recognize that takes place in other parts of the world. Certainly could happen here as well at times. But Lord, we're thankful that you are victorious over sin, evil, and death. And we do look forward to that day when the new order of things will come, when death and mourning and crying and pain will all be things of the past. We will be in your presence, the presence of the Prince of Peace, a presence where, um, where there is no more sorrow and pain. We, Lord, we look forward to that day. But between this day and that, may we be faithful to you and cling to you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are victorious. May we live out that victory. Uh, may we live it out with grace and how we act, how we treat others around us. May we live such good lives among those around us that they, though they may accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and turn to you and glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.